which reminds me, next week the kids get to stay in for together with their parents, the older kids, next week. So it is the fourth Sunday next week. Uh, so that will happen next week. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. That's not true. Okay. So, anybody wants to know what happens to a pastor with too much time in their hands, they revisit things they've taught and want to teach it again. So, you're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 with me at a, at a further look, because I found some interesting information that I think is quite applicable to what we're doing. So, I have to uh, bring up some more historical facts and regroup on Matthew 5.17. So let's look at 5.17. It says, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So I'm thinking this week, how does that fit in with what Jesus does when he teaches about the law, the Torah, basically, in verses 21 through the end of the chapter? So here's what we have to understand. And I think I said this, I don't know how many moons ago that Matthew was never written in Hebrew. And people look at Matthew and say, there's got to be a Hebrew version that the Greek was rendered into. Well, if there's one, I have never heard of one nor seen one. Now, do some writers of the early church fathers refer to some Hebrew understanding of Matthew? Well, of course. Because I was brought up, just so you know, that God spoke only Hebrew. So here's what's going on. We have a, uh, when Matthew was being written, there was a huge transition more into the Greek language at that time. Matthew was probably written after 60 A.D. Okay. Here's the problem, though. What was happening with the Jewish people at the time? They were probably speaking many languages. They probably they did know Hebrew. They knew Aramaic. They knew Greek, at least those three. I'm sure they knew some Latin to talk to the Romans that were involved. So we live in a a one-dimensional type of society. I look around the room, and many of you know one language. That's never been the norm for most societies. Most societies have had an ability to speak multiple languages. Uh, And I think I told you of a family member that knew many languages in my family, and my dad knew a few, and I barely know English. And I know a few words in in Spanish, um, for baseball, you know, that's it, kind of thing, because because you, I had to communicate with the guys in the bench most of the time when I was in Florida, so I had to at least say certain things in Spanish. But what I'm trying to get at is Matthew is written in Greek. We know that we have many manuscripts of it written in Greek, but it still has a Jewish cultural setting for a life and story of Jesus. So we got to look at it. No matter what we do, we got to step back and say. How was this understood to the people he was talking to that were under the pharisaical rule at the time? Uh, during the rise of the Kone Greek, during the Hellenization, some areas uh, stood in strong resistance to the change. Most people don't like change. And if you're Jewish and religious, you sure don't want to be, uh, have any of the Goyim language, the nation's language, infiltrate because they already went through a period they lost the language for a while. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, they regained the language, they uh, rebuilt the structure of it, and later uh, in our modern times, about two, three hundred A.D., they added vowel points to Hebrew. 
But before that, you could read it just looking at the consonants and no vowels. I don't know if I could ever read English without, well, probably could. Uh, I think somebody did something once on the Internet. They changed words and they just threw it up there and you say, try reading this. And you could read it without all these things. But, uh, but I want you to understand the resistance was very prominent in the land of Israel to this change to Greek understanding. And the Jews struggled to worship God according to the Hebrew Scriptures, maintain their faithfulness to the ancient beliefs and customs because this was infiltrating their society. Uh, so how is the resistance shown? That's the one of the things I, I want to, as we lead to verse 17, I want you to see some of these things. Uh, by loyalty to the law of God and by speaking their language, evidence shows the Jews spoke many languages but naturally kept the language of the Torah predominant. Um, I don't know if you know this, some societies when they came to America, they refused to allow their kids to speak anything but English, but in the home they spoke whatever language they were from. Uh, things have changed now where uh, certain societies say, no, you speak our language wherever you go and let America deal with it. And that kind of irritates me. But that's a personal thing. I, I think keeping your culture is great. I wish I knew some of, uh, well, I know some words that I don't want to say in Yiddish that may be offensive. Most of you won't get it. <laughs> well, my mom will chastise me when we're done. So. <laughs> The New Testament is written in Greek, however, and I want to say this again and again because you'll hear out there, somebody will come up with the Hebrew version of Matthew. It doesn't exist, okay? Uh, and uh, it may be referred to, but, you know, for instance, I can come up with a Coptic or, or Russian version of Matthew because I can find one. But it doesn't mean that was what it was originally written in. So what I would say this, was Matthew from Greek? translated into Hebrew, probably. Okay? But it wasn't the other way around. Kind of get what I'm saying? Uh, and this is important for what I'm going to teach this morning, because uh, I think we need to understand that. Um, and and I would say if it was written in Hebrew, a larger audience would have known that. It's not known. Uh, uh, and here's the problem we have. We I'm holding an English version, of, and i got to say this. I'm using the New American Standard Version, 77. So we all know where we're at. Some of you may have the newer one in 95 because Liz and I were reading through the Bible. I said, what version are you reading? Because it's not reading like mine. I thought you had a New American Standard. And I noticed her version was quite different. I didn't know it was that much of a difference. Um, so if there's anything I ever bring up and you say, my version doesn't have it, do one of these and we'll talk about it. Because uh, here's the problem. I'm looking around the room and there are probably about eight different versions in this room. Okay. Uh, but if you all get on the Internet right now and go to uh, Gateway Bible and go to New American Standard Version, you will find it's a 95, not a 77, so you won't read the same, just in case you're on the Internet. Okay, Okay. with all that said, though, we were moving from a language to a language to a language. So, for instance, when we talk about Greek, uh, the original Greek is far removed from the English and from the Hebrew. They're different languages, and the Hebrew is the language of the Jew. Therefore, when we talk about translation, just the translation process is very complex. So, and I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, which you have in your, unless you have a, a living Bible or good news for modern man or some paraphrase, you're probably having a decent translation. I don't prefer the New American Standard, uh, New uh, International Version, the non-inspired version, whatever it's called. I don't prefer that, but it is a translation, okay? And usually it's good in most areas. Uh, that's why we go back to the Greek and Hebrew a lot. Um, 
power of it, the complexities bring us to this thought, the thing, at the time of Jesus, the language they spoke was Hebrew, the Jewish people. Some of them spoke Aramaic, but it was, it's very close. There's a kinship there. However, the Greek thought was entering the arena, and Romans ruled. So you got to know what's going on with that, because uh, it'll lead us to what I'm going to teach this morning. We can gleam, however, from the Greek text, Jewish thought, as one discovers an understanding of the cultural heritage of the Jewish people at the time of Messiah. So we've still got to do one of these interesting things. We've got to look at the scripture and look at the culture. And when we look at different things, for instance, I will say Torah. And most of you are not that familiar with the word Torah because we talk, we talk about the Bible. Um, but the Torah was the Hebrew Old Testament at the time. It also referred to the five books of Moses, and it referred to the idea of law. Torah meant instruction. I said this over and over again, so I just want you to understand. Torah meant instruction, so if you were opening up your Torah, you were getting what? Instruction, which is interesting because today most people open up the Bible and say, what is my devotional verse for the day? And they want devotion. It was never meant for Devotion. It was meant for instruction. Kind of get that? Hint, 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 hint. Um, so we hit an interesting place because the words of Torah, abolish and fulfill, come in an interesting place when one examines what the Jewish leadership thought of Matthew ch- chapter 5, verse 17. What did they think about the idea of, oh, it's not, what happened? And what I want to examine mostly is the idea of fulfill and abolish this morning in a Jewish mindset, okay? So we have to look at Torah. We have to look at the instruction. We have to understand it reveals God's will. It is good. It is holy. This is what the Pharisees even thought, that God's Torah was revealing God's will. It was good and it was holy. That's never changed. The Hebrew Bible taught God's love for all people and provided a guide for daily life. Therefore, Jesus had high esteem for Torah and addresses the issues of properly comprehending uh, the driving force of the text, which leads to the right conduct in everyday living. So Jesus wants to look at the text and see what it says. Now, here's the problem. People will say, when we get to the sermon I'm about, Jesus expands on the law. I have an issue with that. Because if he's expanding on the law, he's teaching something more than the law. But he has every right to do that because he's God, right? But I don't think that's what he's doing. Okay? They also say he's adding to the law or changing it. And that would be detrimental and against what he would be doing. However, if you go back to... Here's what we're doing. We're going to Jewish thought, Jewish customs of the day. Okay? And what would they think when they heard the Greek... Word abolish. What would they think? Now we've examined abolish, but I want to give you what they, and, and what we would get from the, uh, close Hebrew understanding. It means to cancel, abolish, or destroy. But the word is often used in context dealing with interpreting scripture. So one cancels Torah when one misunderstands it. So when we talk about abolish, it's a, also when one goes to Torah and misunderstands it, they're, they're, they're basically abolishing, canceling what it means. 
So if you go to the Word of God and don't correctly understand it and don't correctly interpret it, you're basically thwarting the purpose God has in the Word. You with me? That kind of understand, that's very understandable because in today's venue, a lot of people go to the text with a pretext and come up with the wrong idea totally and misinterpret scripture. And you say, where did he get that from? Uh, I was sitting down in my board time watching something on TV, Christian TV, which I think is, it was my new oxymoron for 2020. Okay, Christian, t- first of all, it's not even be- decent Bible TV, but this guy was actually opening the Bible and looking at verses in Mark and teaching, and all of a sudden he went off in an application for like 20 minutes that had nothing to do with Mark. Okay, And I would say, in the Torah ramifications of what Matthew 5.17 draws, he's abolishing the law. Do you understand what I'm saying? Get a picture of this, because it's important. So the opposite, to fulfill the law, would be to interpret a passage accurately. To basically, the Hebrew equivalent of this would make would cause one to stand or uphold, to cause to stand or cause to uphold. This word then brings in the idea of interpreting the law correctly. Now, here's where I'm standing because I want you to understand something. I'm not changing the Greek into a Hebrew version. What I want you to get is what they would have understood in Hebrew. Kind of get what I'm saying? I'm not pushing for a Hebrew translation. But I think we get the fullness of a word if we understand what those people understood that to mean when it was being spoken to as they were hearing those words. So the idea then, this word brings in the idea of interpreting the law correctly. The, to annul the law is to misinterpret it or misunderstand it. And I believe that's where the Pharisees were. That's Phariseeism at its greatest. To fulfill the law is to correctly interpret it. We want to... We, you know, we have a mantra here. We go through the Bible verse by verse, but we want to be biblically correct doing it, okay? We just want to go verse by verse and come up with our own, you know, cult, which you could do if you misinterpret. So Jesus is all about, as a rabbi, stepping back as a teacher, what Nicodemus calls him a teacher, a good teacher, great teacher, a godly teacher. As a teacher, he would want to correctly interpret the Torah. He wants a correct interpretation. So he can't go beyond what it says, but he can go and say, this is what it really says. You with me so far? Get a correct understanding. When one understands the proper meaning, one is able to obey God's will. If you don't have a good understanding of God's word, how do you obey God's will if you don't know what the word says? And therefore, by doing God's will, by getting a correct understanding, you will fulfill Torah. When one misunderstands the proper meaning of Torah, one cannot obey God's will, and therefore he cancels or annuls the Torah. Which is interesting, because the Torah itself, the word comes from an idea, is to shoot an arrow. To shoot an arrow. Or to teach. So teaching or instruction that is true and that is straight, if the words of Torah are shot in, in a direct path like an arrow, it cuts, it's straight, it has a path it's going at. Torah is the divi- Torah, can, you could actually say this, Torah is divine aim for all people who love the Lord. God says, here's what I've given you, I've given you my word. You know, I'm going to say this, I don't think many of you know this, all 39 books of the Old Testament have never been contested as not part of the canon of Scripture. Now, some Bibles and some uh, religions will add parts to the Old Testament, but those have never been a part of canon. 
Most of them are, shouldn't even be in any literature whatsoever. Um, so stay away from that. But the 39 books that we have, what we call our Old Testament, is what the Tanakh has as its 39 books. Same thing. Uh, and it's never been uh, charged that it's not part of that canon. So when Jesus was saying law and dealing with the law and abolishing and fulfilling it, he wasn't talking about the New Testament, even though the New Testament is divinely inspired, Word of God. But he's referring at that time to the Old Testament, just so you know what we're talking about, because he did not pick up a little pocket. You ever seen a little pocket New Testament that says, let me explain to you the Torah? He didn't go there, okay? Um, And according to John, Jesus is the very divine Word. So... Uh, keep that all in your, let's put it all, as we put all these things together. So then when we talk about Torah, Torah is God's will then. And when we talk about that understanding, a proper interpretation then breathes life and power into the divinely spoken words. When we, when we look at it and we get a right interpretation and the right understanding. Now, now I'm going to say something. The Jews today have five levels of understanding God's word. I think at least three of those are really off base and go way too far off the deep end. But we sometimes miss the two important ones, which means go, read what it says and understand it and get the understanding of the words in the context they are so you get a full understanding. And, and not a deeper, you know, some people go into, ever heard of numerology? This number, this letter means this number. And, this, and, and if, for years people have been trying to figure out what 666 means. You know, because numerology is one of those ideas, and was Obama, did his name fit into 606, and then they changed his name to abomination, which ruined the 666 thing anyway. Um, but you, you try and say, who fits in the six? I don't care. I don't care. Uh, we know it will have something at that time, but I'm not looking for it to fit into whose name it could be, because uh, that's a different level of interpretation that's almost mysticism. Okay? So we want to be aware, don't be mystic. Mystics on this thing. Uh, Greeks study to comprehend. Listen, this is so important. Greeks study to comprehend. Westerners study to apply their knowledge in a practical sense. The Hebrews study to revere God. So we have this dimension going on. Let me say it again, because I think this is important for us to know what's going on. The Greeks study to comprehend. So we have the philosophers that came out of it. What does it say? Westerners study to apply. What does it mean to me? Right? That's, we really got to stay away from that. That's, that's dangerous almost. But the Hebrews study to revere God. And I think sometimes we look at Hebrew people today and we say, well, they're not saved, they have these issues, they don't, love, they don't know Jesus, which is fine, but do we have the fervor to revere God like some of them have? And I think we miss that. Because God gave Torah... He is to be revered. We should stand in awe and wonder before a God who could give us an understanding of who He is so He can be personal to us. Get where I'm coming from? So study of the Word of God should lead to reverence of God and reverence to obedience. So when we talk about Jesus came to interpret the Torah accurately so that God could be revered and obeyed through proper action. That's what Jesus is leading to. Jesus is leading to what's your mindset that takes you to the place your actions match with God's will for you. What is your 
idea about understanding Scripture. Have you revered God? And we look back and we can say, what did the Pharisees revere? And we can say this real easily, themselves. They lifted up themselves because they thought they were greater than the sinners. So when we talk about abolish, it's, it's, it's to obstruct, obstruct through wrong interpretation. Fulfill is the understanding of Torah that leads to holy living. Isn't that kind of a, an interesting way to look at this? Because Jesus is now going to say, here's what leads to righteousness. Isn't the discussion about righteousness? Because it says, as, we, as we've dealt with this in verse 20, look at Matthew 5.20. So we're going to be around these five verses for a few minutes. I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. The topic is, how are you righteous? If you're matching yourself and doing what the Pharisees are doing, they're, they're abolishing the law. Jesus is really nicely saying the Pharisees have abolished the law. They don't even have a correct interpretation of it. Why are you following people? And why are you using them as your uh, mentors and as your figure to be like when they are misinterpreting the law? And we'll look at this as we go through 21 through the end of the chapter. Um, so he says, uh, he goes in here in verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. So again, when we talk about by deleting the smallest letter or ignoring the little stroke that comes off of a a Hebrew character, one negates the true meaning of the the Torah. You can't get what it really understands if if you eradicate and change words. You can't get an understanding. And you can virtually, listen, this is so important. You can virtually make it say anything but the truth. I think I read here a couple of years ago from a Jewish commentary that understood Genesis 3.15, but enmity between you and uh, Satan and the woman in between, and that you know uh, the seed of Satan will have strife against the seed of the woman kind of thing. And, that's, and basically the Hebrew interpretation came out, you'll be afraid of snakes. Like, what? How did you get that? Because they went beyond what it was saying and, and left out ideas and words because they, they said, that sounded real good because I don't like snakes. And then you get somebody that loves snakes and they say, well, how did you get that? How did you get that? Oh, I'm not a snake. I'm, I'm snake indifferent. You know what that means? It means if I need to kill them, I kill them. I'm never going to have them as a pet, but I don't care if they're in my yard. Because I know if I had a slew of snakes, I got less rats. Because I'm not buying a cat. Just as easy as that. I could tell you a story about the cat, but that's all there. Matthew 5.17 becomes clearer as Jesus then teaches on the proper understanding of the Torah, because that's what he's going to do in 21. Here's the proper understanding. Not fuller, not expanded. Here's how you are to understand these Torah understandings, how they were meant to be understood. And that's why he opens up verse 21 and says, You have heard that the ancients were told... So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does not teach the letter of the law, but goes beyond and reaches to the full understanding of what righteousness required in that coming kingdom. Because if we all did the letter of the law, we could be like the rich young rulers who said, all these things I've done since my youth. I, don't, I think most of us could say that. Have you murdered anybody lately? If you have, please don't tell me. I have to, I have to, I have to call Bobby in kind of thing. 
you know, some of you may have stole a paperclip from work. We're not talking about that. That's not what it's dealing with. If stealing a paperclip from work comes under thou shalt not steal, I have issues, right? All of you, where did a pen come from? I don't know. Did I steal it from work? Maybe I'm going to go put it back. Where did I get the pen from? I think that's why people put their names on pens now, you know, the business names, because they know it's not advertising. They're going to catch you. You stole that pen. I'm going to give you a couple more random thoughts, and we'll be in the text in a minute. Um, So the Sermon on the Mount is therefore an exposition on how Jesus interprets the law. That's all it comes down to. The Sermon on the Mount is how Jesus understood the Torah, the correct understanding. Because he didn't come to give you a misunderstanding. He wanted to get rid of the misunderstandings and the misinterpretations and give you the proper interpretation. He doesn't, therefore he doesn't make Torah null and void. He makes it relevant so that you can worship and revere the true God. So Jesus came, believe it or not, firstly, as a Torah teacher. He was a teacher. Um, if you don't believe that, go back a chapter to chapter 4, verse 17. Verse 23, and says, Jesus was going about in all of Galilee. What's the next word? Teaching. Wow. He wasn't making up things. He wasn't trying to be legal. He wasn't coming around as, a, as, as some scribe, Pharisee, Sadducee, uh, whatever it might be, an Essien or a zealot. He wanted to teach which is interesting. He wanted to teach in their synagogues. You know, I can't help but kind of look at this a little closer and say, maybe they weren't teaching in their synagogues. Maybe they were just what? Going through the motions. Maybe they were giving you man's thoughts. Uh, and then he said, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. These were what Jesus was doing. He was teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was like a... Here's how we can do this. Go back to John. I think it's John 1. If I don't find it real quick, then I'll just tell you what... Or if one of you will find it. I think it's John 1.17. All these things go through my head at once. So. Yes, John 1.17. See, I was, I was good. That's, I remembered one verse. <laughs> it says, for the law, the Torah, was given through Moses. Moses was the mediator of Torah. Right? Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is compared to Moses. Moses was a prophet. Moses was a prophet who went to Mount Sinai to get God's word. Jesus was a prophet, the prophet that Moses predicted would come, the prophet who went up on a mountain to give a right understanding of the Torah. Kind of interesting, isn't that how that works out? So when we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we're getting the very God of gods in human form teaching on the very word he gave to Moses. Therefore, and I'm going to say this in this congregation, the Torah, the Old Testament, needs to be taken very serious. The law, too. All of that needs to be taken serious. There are some people today, well, we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need to teach the Old Testament. We don't need to open. They kind of rip their Bible in half and walk around with the New Testament. They don't even look at the Old Testament. That's wrong. Here's the facts, though. And I think we need these facts to go into Matthew with. First of all, according to Jesus, not one jot or tittle will pass away. Therefore, the Torah is eternal. 
If he says it wouldn't pass away, it's eternal. This word we have is eternal. When, he, when later the Lord will tell the nation of Israel he will put in their heart the law, it's eternal. He's going to put it in them so they won't have to carry this anymore. It won't be as bulky as this. It'll be here. Okay? It'll be within them. Here, not here. Um, now, Jesus is going into Matthew chapter 5, and I, I want you to understand this. He's doing it via rabbinic argumentation. He's going to be argumentative, but don't use that word as a negative. He's saying, they've said, I will say. He's very uh, sure about, they have heard, you've heard this. That means the group of Pharisees have taught this. You've heard this, or you've read this, but over your lifetime, you've heard this. And then he says, I, very emphatically, say unto you for your benefit. I say this unto you for your benefit. So those two phrases are set, uh, to, uh, against, uh, not against each other, but uh, as the, the status of what we're doing. Because he wants, Jesus, Jesus is doing this. He's challenging his listeners to understand and not misunderstand the Torah. He's giving them a proper interpretation. And once he does that, they are now responsible for what? For what they do with the proper interpretation. So you could even say this when he goes to verse 21. Your understanding of the text is this, but I'm going to give you this understanding of the text for your advantage. We could even say that if we were going to look at that in a fuller understanding. Uh, uh, and they did. Listen, what they had is an understanding there's nothing wrong with. It was simple, though. It was simple. And I think the Lord will always give us reasons why he gives things. And that's what we have here. Uh, so when Jesus teaches the Torah, he lives the Torah, he embodies the Torah. He could not annul or set it aside, because if he did, he'd be annulling himself. Because he is the very word of God, right? So let's do this. Let's go to the text, and I, let me find what I want. So we're going to look at the law. Uh, and I don't mean the Ten Commandments. Somebody will say, when you get to Matthew chapter 25, 21, it talks about the Ten Commandments. Well, if you do, you're, you're what? Like eight, uh, seven short of Ten Commandments. So here's what we're going to look at. Not this morning. Partially. We're going to look at the idea of murder, which is in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, right? Adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery. False vows, I should what? Tell the truth, nothing but the truth, the whole truth, so help you God. So those three are in the Ten Commandments. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth are not in the Ten Commandments. They are part of the Torah. And neither is love your neighbor, and that's not in that. We'll, we'll go through these as we look at this, and I think we've... Uh, so here's the main points we've got to deal with. First of all, he's dealing with righteousness. What is the righteousness that's required for that kingdom? Okay, and he's going to do what? According to this, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. This is part of the package of the good news of the kingdom. And the first thing most of us would say, I can't meet those requirements. Bingo, good for you. Um, this is why Jesus teaches various issues involved in the coming kingdom. Uh, I don't have Galatians memorized, but, it's, but I do have it up there. So go to Galatians chapter 3. And we are going to spend some time, this, hopefully this year, in Galatians uh, Chapter 3, verse 24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor, I think we referred to this last week, uh, to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. So the law is, is a school bus driver that gets us there. When we look at the law, the first thing we're going to say is, okay, I want to obey that, but I can't. 
If you think you can do these things, you can't. Um, so the Mosaic Law made one guilty and condemned one. So the idea of Mosaic Law was the penalty of sin is death. How do we get removed from that penalty? What do we do to get right with God? How do we do things so we revere this holy God? So again, and the motif, I've said this before, is a you have heard, I say to you, which really helps break up the points that we have there. Lastly, the main point is what men must do to get that kind of righteousness which God requires. How do we get that righteousness? Well, if I obey the Ten Commandments, you still will not have the righteousness God requires. And that's that's what Jesus is going to say as he deals with these points in the Sermon on the Mount. So the formula. I see somebody writing notes. You guys got that? No. No? Take a picture. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Let me know, a few of you bob your heads and let me know. But we're going to get to the idea of formula that we need. Because I think as we go through this, if we understand there's a pattern that Jesus sets there, it'll be important for us to see. Uh, and no one is told to live by these in today's age. Remember, we're dealing with, we're still in the economy of Israel and the time of Israel. We're not in the church age. So he's not talking to church age believers do these things. Okay, He's talking to those that are kingdom uh, bound or that will be in the kingdom at some point. This is what they're going to be doing in that kingdom and be like. We got it? Since I rambled like FCC, just keep talking. Okay, formula. These five subjects, these five subjects addressed are not just for Israel. These are universal moral principles. In other words, he's addressing these people in the kingdom, but they're just moral principles. We can look at these and say, well, that's good for me. I understand that. I should be like that. Therefore, the kingdom reflects these universal rules or guidelines. It's a good for all mankind. If everyone was like this, it'd be great for everybody. Okay? But it's meant, again, for the nation of Israel. The most important thing in a kingdom is how close the king relates to the word of God and how does his subjects relate to the word of God. So the relationship is king to people, people to the word of God, king to the word of God, and they meet together. You understand? So Jesus is a king, and what is he using? He's not saying, subject, be subject to me. He's saying, here, I'm going to use the word of God. Submit to my authority. Um, So let's just kind of talk about some of these principles that we need to understand. First of all, God gave to Israel uh, a uniqueness. Now, here's the hard part that most people don't get. He's not talking to individuals, even though individuals are involved. He's talking to a nation. It's a nation, national distinction. So when we talk about that, Israel was made unique uh, by God because he gave them three items that they had that no other nation had. Um, uh, the, they're the only nation that was given by God a constitution. We have a constitution in America, and we want to say it was God-given because we want to say godly men came up with this and came up with our constitution based on what? Their godly beliefs. But I'm going to say something. I don't know what they believed fully. I've done some under, you know, background understanding of the faith of our fathers was a pretty good book. But um, unless I meet with these people, I don't know what they believed. Some of them were deists. Some of them had other issues. Uh, the problem is we are so removed to that from that mentality. The Bible actually guided people back then. Whether they were true believers or not, they believed the Bible was a standard. Uh, so there was some common ground there, but God did not give America its constitution. Okay, uh, I know from Exodus, he did give them their constitution. And the effectiveness of this constitution depended on the submission to its, of its subjects. Uh, 
today's Constitution of America is being obliterated by what people think it says. And we have constitutional lawyers and lawyers to back up the constitutional lawyers. And then we have people that are, that are interpreters of the Constitution instead of just read it, man. Well, what does it say? Uh, and that becomes blurred in itself. But when we look at this, God says, here's what I'm giving to you to have a relationship with me. Submit to it. Thirdly, God did not make, seek Israel, Israel's input to this agreement. He didn't say, okay, let's sit down, uh, the leaders of Israel and me, let's sit down and we'll come up, we'll draw up a constitution. God said, here it is, take it. Okay? Uh, and this is known as a citizenry treaty where the terms of submission of an inferior to a superior is a given idea. God is the superior. And he wants his nation, Israel, to submit to him. Uh, willingly, and then he says, "Come up with things with if you obey and keep my covenant." Well, let's let's just do this. Now I'm talking. Go to Exodus 19, real quick. There is a place I'm going. We talked about abolish and fulfill, and now we're talking about Israel as a nation because Jesus is dealing with Israel as a people group in Matthew chapter five. Exodus 19, verse verse five. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of, from all the, all the earth is mine. Now, this is very simplistic. God says, I'm going to give you a constitution, and you, if you obey this, this is what you'll get. Right? I mean, we could see this simply if we read it. Uh, so God, keeps, uh, God says, if you keep my covenant, you are a unique people. You are a priestly people. You're a holy people. You're different. You're going to be my own possession. Let's talk about that first. Do I have it? Oh, that, that was up there. That was the idea of the three principles we're looking at. And, and there's a verse. Uh, God did not see... I, I still think this is interesting. Because some people think God thought that, sought their insights when doing something, so they give you their insights and don't go to the Word of God. Say, this is what it says. So... While you're copying that, though, let me give you some idea behind you shall be my own possession. God says Israel is God's possession. Uh, their, their value, they're unique. God has ownership over them. So when somebody says God's done with Israel, I figure God's a bad owner, isn't he? I don't see anywhere this is ever broken uh, and Israel was, had possessed God's word, which made them very unique. You realize you're holding in your hands a book that was passed down through the Hebrew nation so that you could get it. Now, I know it's been told, some of you, that 40 writers wrote over 2,500 years to give you your Bible. And all 40 of those writers, one of them was a Gentile. All the rest were Jews. No, they're all Jews. That's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. But it was, but as it was matriculated to us, as it came down to us, Jews made sure and kept the, the copies and, and, and different copies and different manuscripts. They kept them. That was their job, especially the Essians up in the mountain. And when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm trying to remember the date. Was it 48, somewhere in there? When a kid was throwing a rock. And hit, hit, a, hit a bunch. And all these manuscripts that had been meticulously hand copied were exactly what we have. Okay? And it's fascinating to do some of those studies. So God says, you're going to be, uh, first of all, my own possession. Secondly, He says, you are going to be a priestly people. A priestly people. God, Israel was to be a mediatorial nation. 
Okay, he didn't say you were going to be a nation with priests. That would be different, right? He said you were going to be a priestly nation. Therefore, the nations would be linked to God. All the nations of the world, even today, believe it or not, are linked to God through Israel. So when they're doing harm to Israel, they're breaking their link. Think about that for a minute, because this may happen to America. And what he's saying, now, as individuals, our link to God is through Christ, right? But this is a different thing that's being taught, uh, taught about, that it, and Israel did not fulfill their uh, mediatorial uh, kinship with God, but they were to be that. And therefore, through them came the Messiah, who is the one mediator between God and man, right? Which has kind of changed, because I said Israel's the mediator between nations and God. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Hear the difference? And thirdly, they are to be a holy people. A holy people. Uh, One of the things we know about the word holy is to be set apart. So God set them apart. They would be a liaison for people to get to God. And in Zechariah, it says in the end times that, that people will grab the hem of a Jew to be led to God. So there are people that would bring people to God. They're set apart. Uh, the word of God makes them different and makes you different. We're called a holy people too because we are set apart because of the word of God. And a holy people were to reflect a holy God. How did they do with that? How are they good at reflecting the holiness of God? Look at Psalm 147. Psalm 147. Verse 20. And I think this kind of in a nutshell puts it in clear language that the psalmist is writing here from a very Jewish perspective. And he says, verse 20, Psalm 147, verse 20, He has not dealt with thus with any nation. In other words, God has only dealt with us, one nation like this. No other nation. You can't say this about, you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, United States. We can keep going. God has not. For, as for his ordinances, they have not known them. God gave it to Israel, and without Israel getting those out, we would never have them. You with me? It's important for us to see this. So when we talk about that, and also, they were taken from among all people. When God chose them out, he took Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and chose him to be the leader of a new people, the Hebrew people. So they were taken out from among the nations. And I think that's important for us to say because they weren't, they are, there's really never a time they are among the nations that are different. And then God says as a punishment for them not obeying, they would be scattered among the nations. They would be in exile. I don't know if you know this, but I'm an exiled Jew because I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Because of what happened, what? Due to, due to what? Unbelief. Israel was given a punishment that would scatter them. Now, I, now, because I'm not living in Israel, don't walk up to me and say you're in unbelief. You should be in Israel doing no. Because this is the dime, this is what we are right now. Because one day God will do what? He will gather His people from the four corners of the earth. He will bring them back. So I won't be here for that. I'll be with y'all, whether raptured or not. I'll be with y'all. So, um, so let's let's look at Jesus' interpretation of an application of the law, uh, the Torah. Um, now, first of all, I want to set up the three parts. When we talk about uh, the law, 
Now, this is different. Torah is the whole Old Testament. Torah is also dealing with the law, and Torah also deals with the books of Moses. But here within, and I want us to understand this, the, the, uh, the pharisaical translation had to deal with um, the teaching on the law specifically, what they had added to it, how they interpreted the law, what they imposed, the yoke of bondage they put upon people. And I want us to know what these, these, these things have to deal with. Now, if we go back, I know you're all taking pictures. Hang on for a second. I'm going to go back just oh, like 50 slides. Well, if you look at these, though, and just quickly glance at them, these are the five that we're going to deal with. You can say internal or external. Murder is what? External. Adultery. External. False oaths or, or being a false witness to something. It's external, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You knock my teeth out, I'm knocking your teeth out. That's an external, right? How about love your neighbor? That's, that was always, always interpreted as an external. Because they would ask a question. Who's my neighbor? And if you said to them, everybody, they said, no, no. Everybody's not my neighbor because I have what? I have enemies. And I'm supposed to love my, and it says it here, it'll say in Matthew that you've heard to, that you're to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I don't know where anywhere that is in my Bible, but that is definitely pharisaical because it's really good to hate your enemies. Right? Because every one of us want to hate somebody, you know. Anyway, we'll get to that when we get to that. I don't know where I was. Hang on. Okay, so we have three break. Let me give you the three three main parts of what we call the Jewish law. Okay, it was commandments, commandments. There was the mishpatim, which is the judgment. The mishpatim is basically case law. Here's a law, and here's a judgment for that. This will happen. This is what you do about that. So you have case law, and then there's ceremonial law. It carries over into Leviticus. I just gave you the basics of it. But if you go through Leviticus, you'll have all the offerings. So ceremonial law, uh, basically setting up the priesthood, the tabernacle worship, the offering system, how to do it, how to the dimensions, exact dimensions of every article in the tabernacle, and how it would be built and how it would be overlaid, how many rings would hold up a curtain. I mean, I don't know about you guys. That would drive me crazy if I had an interior director come to my house and say, Here's how you're going to do it. We're going to put up curtains with 24, you know, little links on it. Just do it. I could care less what it's got as long as it opens and closes, right? So, I mean, but this is very important to God because all this held together, what God wanted is an exact replica of what was in heaven, okay? So God gave exact dimensions to Moses that we can sort of um, reproduce today. Uh, there in, in Israel, there's a... Is it Israel? Jordan? Somewhere. I can't remember which side I went on. There was an, we went to a tabernacle set up there that was the exact kind of replica of what, because they had the dimensions. But the problem is, what's a cubic? Most people say 18 inches, but they didn't have a ruler there. And a cubic is usually from your elbow to the top of your finger. And if you know anything about me, this is really short. That's why I played baseball. If I played basketball, it would be longer. So I didn't have to jump. So... These are the, but usually a cubic is 18 inches, okay? But we have direct, we have direct communication with God what this would be like. So then we have why these five, uh, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, well, let's just do this. Go to, go to Proverbs. We've got a few minutes. Go to Proverbs chapter 6. Before we go here, Proverbs chapter 6. 
Now, everybody talks about God's love, and God loves everybody, and God's going to do things in love. But God does hate things, and I think sometimes we don't understand that. So when we talk about these five, we have to understand what God thinks is sin, I think is most important. And it says in Proverbs, verse 16, Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. I don't know if you know that. That means God just, don't do these things. Okay? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. I basically think we're getting an expansion on Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. We're getting an understanding of this is what God hates. So when we go to into these and the Sermon on the Mount, which looks like more, we'll be into it next week than today, we'll find out God doesn't like these things. He doesn't even like the mental attitude behind them. Okay? So one of the things we look at is these are principles given uh, of righteousness expressed by the law. If you look at those five things up there, those are righteous expressions of the law. Have you done these things? And he's challenging his audience with that. Then Jesus moves on to the practice, and that's in 5, 21 through 48. Then in chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus moves on to the practice of righteousness expressed in the law. Right? Where he goes to the model prayer. Right? Everybody, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. I don't know. Anybody pray that lately? No. So we gotta, we're going to look at that. Then he further teaches in 6, 19 through 7, 12, the perspective they are to have living under this law. He's talking to the nation of Israel. Not you and me. Is there implication and application for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it may even change your driving habits, or at least mine. So the principles, you guys, you guys don't know, just don't know. Um, so we're going to start with the principles. So let's go to Matthew 5:21, and we're just going to just touch on this to start with. Um, and I just want to do some grammar stuff real quick, and then we'll look at it, and we should get through a few principles in this, and I'm not going to tell you how wrong murder is, but murder's wrong. And I'm, fir- I'm firmly behind capital punishment for any murder that's, that's been uh, gone to court, and the guy's been accused of it, and he should be put to death timely. Um, there are certain states that no longer have capital punishment. Um, I don't know what to say other than move, um, because it's wrong. Um, but when we look at the structure here, when we get to 521, I want us to see three things, first of all. The first thing is, you have heard, and the idea here is this, this is historical fact. I want you to understand this. They have heard this. I don't know how they've heard it, if they've been taught it, if it's um, coming down the stem of people always teaching it. Remember, in Israel, a father was to teach these precepts and concepts to their children, and one of the things would be in the law you've heard. And Jesus doesn't even begin with the number one thing in the law, the Ten Commandments. He deals with this one specific thing. Um, and, I, and I believe I know why, but I'm probably wrong. But he deals with murder first. And he says, secondly, but I say to you, and which is in 
Verse 22, so he's setting up this, and it's not a contrast. Because here's what happened. When somebody says, you have heard, but I say to you, they think the word but there is a hard contrast, and Jesus is saying something contrary. No, he's not. Uh, and I want us to understand this. Is, he's not teaching a contrast. The word day, D-E, is carrying on the narrative. He's just carrying on the discussion. He says, let's discuss it. Or you could even put in there, uh, yet in fact, I say. Or you could say, moreover. You don't really put a but in there because he's, 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 he's being emphatic about the end of his phrase, not the beginning of his phrase. He's, not, he's saying, I say to you, and the emphatic part is to you, to your advantage. I'm saying this to you for your advantage. So we have the three things. You have heard, I say to you, and the, the day, the, the conjunction that's put in there for continuation of narrative. Jesus is giving in the Sermon on the Mount the gospel of the kingdom. Remember what he's doing. He's giving the gospel, the good news in that coming kingdom. Good news. That's all gospel means here. It doesn't mean when we say gospel, we're talking about the gospel that saves through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he adds his expression of righteousness should exceed the Pharisees. So he's saying, I'm teaching, his, we know from Matthew, he's teaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then it's added to that, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So if you look at the scribes and Pharisees, you would think they're righteous people. Because they what? They looked righteous, they smelled righteous, but they never stepped in any righteousness. At all. They were not. They had a righteousness of their very own. Okay? Uh, Jesus is not dealing with the Ten Commandments. He's dealing with five probably well-known pharisaical understandings. That's, all, that's how I come to conclusion. These are five things the Pharisees kind of kept repeating. And especially in the society, Rome, that's going on, they would love an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and hate your enemies because Rome was definitely an enemy. Okay? And they would love that. He's a, and, he, and if he's giving an understanding of the ten, why does he only get deal with three? In other words, people will say, hey, he's talking about ten commandments and how they are rightly interpreted, but he only deals with three. And I would have started with, you know, love the Lord your God. <laughs> Because you guys don't. Um, I would definitely have thrown in, quit having idolatry, because they did. Um, so on and so forth. Uh, and the first four, which is interesting, because the first four in the command, Ten Commandments all deal with God's relationship to man, or man's relationship to God. He's not even talking of any of these about God's relationship to man. He's just saying, here's what you need to understand. Here's, here's what you need to grasp. Jesus taught, and I'm not going to go through all these verses, we may pick them up next week, but Jesus taught everywhere he went as one having authority. I want to say that, because even the scribes said, you have authority. Who gave you this authority? Nicodemus says he's a teacher that's beyond every teacher. Where did he get this authority? And authority means you have an ability to understand the word and use the word correctly. It's not one who's a thug standing up. And, and As a matter of fact, I think Jesus did not ever teach as a thug. I don't think he ever pounded on one pulpit. Um, those kind of ideas. And this section on the Sermon on the Mount is dealing with kingdom teaching. None of this is meant for salvation, but for a righteousness that God required in the king, coming kingdom. Now, let's look at the first part of the verse, because we're going to go. Uh, but here, you know, I could go for another half an hour. we got food back there. Now, I want to give you a breakdown real quick. Verses 21 and 22 are the teachings that's been there and what Jesus says. So let's just look at it. We're going to look at it, and we'll call it a morning. But in verse 21, he says, You have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. 
Now, the first part, you shall not commit murder, is the law, the Ten Commandments. The other part is the rabbinic teaching that you'll be liable to the court. Now, according to law that was further expanded in Exodus, under case law, you committed murder, unless it was by accident, which was not considered a murder anyway, premeditated murder was not going to liable to the court. You were liable to what? Death penalty. Okay? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, which is interesting, because Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. Um, I do not believe the statement was sending anybody there, though. He's just showing how offensive you can be without actually killing anyone. Okay? Then verses 23 through 26 give us illustration of what to do in case you have a problem with a brother or you have a problem with an opponent. So you have a problem, or we can say it this way. You've got something going on with a friend and an enemy you have an issue with. And that enemy is going to take you to court. What do you do? Okay, so Jesus is going to give that. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. So, and we'll talk a little bit about the biblical law of murder and how it's handled and how Jesus handled it. And prayerfully, uh, we'll, we'll get an understanding of what Jesus was doing by not abolishing the law, but by fulfilling the law. Uh, we're, going to st- we're going to stand and sing, I love you, Lord. That's pretty easy. Most of us know that uh, it's Tim 80 in your hymn books. Uh, Aaron wasn't here last week, but we actually used the blue books. It was like, wow, this is really cool. Um, but if you want to, it's in your blue books. And I'm going I'm to pray, and then we'll be dismissed. And then we'll pro- when everybody gets into the fellowship hall, we'll start with our luncheon and business meeting. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. Again, a blessing to know that you're a God who cares about relationships between yourself and man, that you've given us the, the righteous standard. And Father, often as we look at it, we cannot meet that standard, but we are righteous, we are declared righteous in your Son. And we thank you for your, our relationship with your Son and what he's done for us on the cross. Again, I thank you for this church body in Jesus' name. Amen.